This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Hello everybody, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Jane and we've got a a great week of uh, interviews for you lined up tonight. Thanks very much to the Doing Time Show just now with Peter and Marissa. So tonight we have an interview with David Holmes. David is a Senior Lecturer in Communications and Media Studies at the Monash University and uh, he's talking to Vivian a bit about how our media and the shadowy think tanks shape ideas about climate action. The interview is in actually in three parts, uh, so we'll have a, a musical break and community announcements in between those interviews. And then lastly, we're going to have a repeat of a Roger Dargaville interview that was played on Radio National recently with Michael McKenzie. And that interview, in that interview, Roger Dargaville's speaks to how we could actually achieve a 50% of reduction in carbon emissions in Australia by 2030. But uh, first up, let's get into the David Holmes interview. David Holmes is a Senior Lecturer in Communications and Media Studies at Monash University. He's about communicating the relationship between political, the political climate and media power and climate change. I don't think David is the author of headlines like Carbon Zombies or Kick This Mob Out, but he's all in favour of climate activists grabbing the attention. One of his articles was entitled Four Hiroshima Bombs, A Second, How We Imagine Climate Change. Now, if that grabbed your attention, perhaps you'll learn something from David, which I'm hoping I will too. I'm going to ask him tonight about engaging in the culture war that is blazing around us about coal, wind turbines and who is running this country. So welcome, David. Thank you, Vivian. David, can you start by telling us about yourself and how media studies can help climate activists? Well, I think uh, in Australia in particular, media studies is very important for climate change communication because we have a a kind of unusual uh, alignment of political, economic and sort of media forces in this country that means that climate mitigation strategies and decarbonisation policies are really having a hard time in getting through with the media and uh, I think there's there's all sorts of reasons for that. One is the immense concentration of media power in Australia where you have, you know, 70% of capital city 
dailies owned by one company, which is News Limited. You have the fact that that those newspapers, particularly the tabloids, tend to set the morning agenda for today for the day's news and and how topics are run and how they're treated. And then they're, of course, you know, t- taken up with your uh, <clears throat> television news in the evenings, which are, you know, following those agendas. And so so you're getting this double whammy of your tabloid newspapers and then, you know, quite tabloid journalism within the news outlets. And I should point out that most Australians do get their news from uh, actually commercial television news. If you look at the Convergence Review report, the, the final report that came out in 2012, you know, in... in in the case of tabloid news, what you're really getting is kind of quite sensational treatments of climate topics that really appeal to sort of knee-jerk reactions. So, you know, the, the, the taking up of um, slogans and caricatures about um, axing the tax, the toxic tax and so forth. And, and often in the case of a tabloid reader, you know, they might just glance at these headlines and caricatures of, of, uh, of the opposition leader climbing back out of a grave as a zombie, um, you know, threatening to bring back the, the carbon tax. They, they, most readers would just glance at this on their way to the sports pages, but nevertheless, it, it still uh, ha- has an important intimidating effect, I think, on both parties uh, <clears throat> on, you know, what they can actually do with climate because uh, they know how uh, these topics can be so easily, you know, e- easily sort of processed mm. through tabloid media in a way that's really going to put uh, readers off, uh, even having to get their head around, you know, what a a climate policy might look like. You know, it intimidates politics in general. Yes, well, I I feel intimidated. I wouldn't be entering into that world with them because I think they'd make mincemeat of me and lots of climate activists sort of feel, look, especially with the vested interests behind those media people, you know, you just can't take them on. They're so relentless. They've got so much money. To, to keep pumping out, you know, media campaigns. And I thought you were joking in your article. Um, I just read one the other day in the conversation and you said that New South Wales Liberals were having a carnival of coal. But I thought this must be a joke and then I realised it wasn't at all. And I wonder how they have become so bold. What does it say about our culture? Yes, well... The, the carnival of coal that um, is being run by the New South Wales Liberal Party is is a response to to a party being held uh, within Sydney by a renewables group um, that you know was proposing a celebration of we should be celebrating renewables rather than coal. So, uh, but nevertheless, it really is happening. They're, they're a party under that you know that is a, a, a as in a social party that some people go along to an event, presumably it will be a fundraising event as well. But in another um, culture, it would be scorned. I mean, we've had these recent, recent racist and then anti-racist sort of standoffs in the streets of the big cities because citizens say, no, we're not going to let those people take over the, se- the streets. But how can we let this sort of thing go unscorned? It is remarkable, I guess, in the, in the same sense in which 
politicians might be timid to actually do anything about climate change. They feel emboldened that they can enjoy, you know, an environment where they're totally covered by the tabloidisation of climate change politics and and that this kind of um, culture of celebrating coal could even exist, you know, you could even imagine that. I mean, it's, you know, in 2015, it, 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 it really is... It really is an indictment on on um, Australian politics that this could exist. When mm. you know we're talking about a country that is the most exposed country on earth to actual climate change impacts, it um, it's a country that has the highest per capita carbon footprint uh, within the OECD countries. Is set to multiply if you factor in coal export by a factor of two and a half. Scientists are saying this all the time. Some journalists are reporting that that message, but really the general public still seems to be fairly nonchalant. They're exercised by electricity bills and all of that, but this thing about coal, which I'm especially worried about because we export climate change. You know, we we are exporting the climate change, which, as you say, will come back and bite us. But how can the public, you know, the culture become sort of wired up to the danger in coal? That carbon footprint is sort of it's exported overseas you know for example you know if it's exported to China can be um, turned into electricity that that's used to make consumer items that we end up consuming and so indirectly you know we're, I mean we're, we're doubly creating that footprint we're, we're exporting the coal and then that we're consuming the the items that are produced by the the, the electricity generated mm. that sort of footprint is so much more global and therefore much much more abstract than than the way we might talk about our domestic emissions but but indeed those global emissions energy in the exports of coal is much greater than our domestic um, output in energy so if you take for example the coal lying in the Galilee Basin in Queensland alone you know Bill McKibben from 350.org using Climate Institute data here in Australia has argued that that if all of that coal was burnt, uh, it would get the world 30% the way to two degrees, mm. you know. And, um, I mean, that is just astonishing that there is that much. So, the, you know, the Leave It in the Ground uh, campaign is, is really much more important these days than, than having targets, many of which are, in, in, you know, incomparable. How yes. do you compare, yeah. you know, a, an Australian target that's, you mm. know, a, about a certain percentage by a certain date with yeah. other targets overseas that are about different dates and different yeah, percentages. I yeah. know, and it, and, that, and that sort of confusion for the person, as you say, who glances at the front page and then goes straight to the sport, that, that confusion just leaves them, leaves them cold. So yep. you said in your article that the love of coal in Australia is going to end badly, like all relationships based on fantasy. And um, I think it's a love affair which is making our carbon exports you know, <laughs> yeah. putting us as a kind of world criminal, really, is greater than Saudi Arabia, apparently, if we exploit all that, as you said, Galilee coal. Mm. And voting Abbott out won't stop these coal exports. We have to, I feel, the cultural um, gatekeepers have to somehow take away the social licence from coal. And I wonder... Mm. Uh, how would a media that believed this, that you have to take away the social licence, how would they frame it? Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, you, you need to frame it on multiple levels. I mean, one is 
look at the concept of what what kinds of industries do we want and what what sort of sustainable industries i mean we you know you can talk about renewable energy as sustainable but you actually want sustainable uh industries where we're building renewable systems uh from you know from the actual sources to the the way we use poles and wires the way mm. we, you know and the way it gets to the home um that is more sustainable than just simply digging something up in the ground from the ground that that is going to run out and you know which is currently just in the, in the interest of of a very you know concentrated number of uh of multinational mining interests and mm. and uh you know i think you've got to you've got to frame things in terms of you know the 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 problem of um of coal uh, contributing to climate inertia. That is, once it's burnt, the CO2 that results has an atmospheric residence time of 2,000 years. You know, and this is often missing in the media messages that we're getting in Australia. Also, the sensitivity that is produced by that much emission, um, that, that, you know, what two degrees actually mean. Many people in Australia, two, degree, two degrees resonates as well. Well, that sounds great. More time at the beach, you yes. know. And that article you referred to in the introduction about... Um, yes, four Hiroshima. The, um, the four Hiroshima bombs mm. per second. The oceans are warming up with the heat equivalent to four Hiroshima bombs per second. Given that, you know, if you look at scientists like James Hansen, who are saying we are actually changing our climate at 10,000 times the natural rate, mm. you know, you can understand we're, we're rapidly committing ourselves to two degrees warming. You know, people really don't have an imagination of what, how bad uh, having that much energy in the system at two degrees uh, warmer than 1750 would, would mean. Um, you know. I, I agree with you about this thing about imagining and imagination. I would like to get the creativity of a lot of people in, into this, even if they don't want to demonstrate or write letters to the Prime Minister. Maybe they're graphic artists or dramatic artists too, theatre people, can get into imaging this so that the, the general public really gets it. And you said in that for Hiroshima's article yeah. that there has been some research on which images work, which images empower people so they feel they can take action. I'd like you to tell me what, what that research found. Yeah, well, there's been some interesting research um, using focus groups in uh, three places, Melbourne, Boulder in uh, the US and Norwich in the UK. Certainly wind farms were really big, solar farms were really big as a sort of practical way in which... Um, you know, people felt they could do something. And yet there were other kinds of images that, you know, made people feel, you know, really powerless, such as, um, you know, just looking at smokestacks on the horizon and so forth. But this sort of study could be certainly expanded to a whole... Oh, I do too. I'm really sick of the iconography of it. I'm sick of the smokestacks. I'm sick of the polar bears and the cracked ground. I mean, the Sydney Morning Herald did a whole series. I thought they were going to keep it up. They did it for one week, every day, an article on climate change and they... Even Bjorn Longborg got a little article in there and it was pretty much rehashed old stuff that they'd done before. I was very disappointed that they had this little logo of the cracked earth. I thought, God, right. drought and, and uh, even the existing drought in Queensland at the moment, we, we hardly know about it. You know, it's a reality to us, but they, they trot it out as if, oh, this yeah. is something in the future. I, I'm really worried that this culture isn't up to 
you know, grabbing this story, and it's a it's a successful story. It, like it's a story that has got potential as beyond zero emissions is always trying to model and show, but um, people yep. need to run with it. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually cracked ground as a um, measure of salience because so, the other thing that Saffron and Neil measured was um, whether an image raised the importance of climate change. So, so, mm. so, as opposed to empowerment, the sense of being able to take any action on it. Mm. And uh, the number one was flood aerial view. Uh, oh, yes. um, was the aerial view of, of say, a, a town you yep. know, under underwater. Yes. Ice sheets came after that, deforestation, and then uh, polar bears, um, mm. which, you know, which are, are kind of problematic in the sense yeah. they're so overused. Well, what, what works for you, David? Uh, you know, in your research on this, you must look at a lot of media. What, what sort of images really grab you that make it real for you? My own research in this area, which involves, you know, looking at... Um, what happens with Australian media when there's extreme weather events like the uh, Queensland floods in 2010-11 or Black Saturday in 2009 or, or the heat waves uh, tends to show that most the most dominant way in which media handle these events is to uh, co-opt those events within two particular narratives. One is uh, I call the fury of nature narrative this idea that, you know, isn't nature awesome? Isn't it amazing? Yes. Acts of God. It's all acts of God, nothing to do with us. Like an act of God and and this this itself becomes a spectacle. Like, you know, we've never seen this before. Take a look at this picture. It's incredible. Um, and the other narrative that that these events tend to get appropriated by is, is uh, uh, triumph over tragedy, which is, you know, this idea that, that these extreme events actually bring out the best in Australians. We we show how we can all pull together and uh, overcome, uh, you know, overcome adversity. And uh, and th- this, you know, th- all my, my analysis shows that just nearly all of the uh, all of these extreme weather events get overtaken by those sorts of things. So that therefore. If you then we can then go back to those images we're talking about, when you look at an image of a flooded city, you tend to think in terms of one of those, mm. uh, the, you know, those narratives, because that's what we're getting wall to wall with well, the with I, the tabloids. I, I assume some of your students in um, at Monash University would be doing journalism. Uh, or would become journalists eventually, yeah. and or they might be in other professions where they have to speak to the media. You know, they might be engineers, for example, and they have to, yep. you know, be a bit multitasked. There, they can't just have knowledge. They need to be able to convey that knowledge. What would you say to them in a different narrative that is more more grabby, perhaps using the same images, but mm. grabbing a different perspective, a more active perspective? Well, what I would say to them is go out, be reporters, but try and convince your editors that more long-form journalism is needed, where you can, for a start, you need long-form journalism, not just journalism that's led by the images, but journalism that contextualises the images. So, you know, in the case of uh, the floods in Queensland, for example, so let's use that as as a vignette. Mm. What was distinctive and important about those floods is that and you know, and I analysed a thousand over a thousand newspaper articles. Uh, what was distinctive about the 
the, the Brisbane, that's when the mm. Brisbane River peaked. Mm. And you remember the Wyvernhoe Dam? I do. And the, there yeah. Was, yeah. Um, what, what was amazing about it is it was the first ever time the Brisbane River was flooded like that that was not the result of a cyclone. Okay. In it previously, when the river got that high, which was in 1893 and 1974, there was um, a huge cyclone, and that was the outfall of the cyclone. So, so therefore, the attribution studies that were done by climate scientists after that suggested, well, this really couldn't have happened unless the, you know, there was really a change in in the climate conditions because all that was all the water that was falling over Queensland was all to do with cl uh, water vapour and sea surface temperatures being at a record high mm. and um, there was just so much water um, deposited on Queensland at that time. So, so, so you'd pull it back to that four Hiroshima bombs per second uh, in the ocean has caused this flood you're seeing here now in Brisbane. Is that the sort of connection well, exactly. you'd want if to make? Yes. Exactly. If there's energy in the system, I mean, every, every one degree increase in global average temperature leads to 15% more of water vapour. Now, that is trillions and trillions of tonnes of water hanging over our head that wasn't hanging over our head in 1750. Well, that's a good image. <laughs> I'm okay. just going to stop you there because listeners will have a break and after okay. the break I'm going to continue talking to David Holmes. He's a lecturer at Monash in Communications and Media Studies and I'm hoping to get him on to talking about the uh, people who are getting into the heads of our uh, Prime Minister and people who, who are stopping the action on climate change. So thanks David, we'll just have a break. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. We're speaking to David Holmes. He's a senior lecturer in communications and media studies at Monash University. Now, David, I'd like to switch now a little bit and talk about the IPA, which is a think tank that to me is rather shadowy, but a lot of people are saying it has great influence. And Naomi Klein, in her book, This Changes Everything, she said she went and sat through a whole conference at the Heartland Foundation, yes. uh, which is a right-wing think tank in America. And I appreciated her saying that and going there, you know, going and sitting there and trying to listen to what their worldview is. And I think we should all know how our opponents think and how conservatives think. We need everybody to work on climate change, and I'm sure it will happen. At the moment, a lot of them are really getting in the way. It's hard for me to get the CEO of Rio Tinto on the program, or AGL. They just shy, yep. no, they won't come. But I think the IPA is getting into their minds, and you know a lot about that. And would you tell us how they are feeding Abbott's agenda on renewables? Sure. Well, you know, I think I think what you can um, point to straight away with the Institute for Public Affairs is that there, there is quite a power elite that that is represented by that organisation of both of like media interests. I mean, it was it was started seventy five years ago by. Rupert Murdoch's father and it also you know members include you know a great number of um, the, the members of the, the Liberal the Federal Liberal Party and also in the past it's had 
donors who you find out about from the corporate fossil fuel industry, you find out about that when they leave. They say, well, we're, we're withdrawing our support. And that includes companies like Exxon is an example. But well, what uh, other names like Australian names would be um, really supporting that? Like Gina Reinhardt or Clive Palmer and all, all of those people sign well, their I, home there? It's difficult to um, point to individuals that are members unless they've self-disclosed other than point out that when the dinner, a dinner was held uh, last year to celebrate the, an anniversary of the IPA that where Tony Abbott came to speak, you know, G- Gina Reinhart and Rupert Murdoch and Tony Abbott were sitting at the same table, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is quite a, a famous event for sort of, you know, a photo opportunity of seeing where such sort of convergences can exist. But certainly the policies of the IPA uh, are very uh, consistent with uh, what the government has actually been implementing uh, since it's been in office. And many people point to one of the pages on the IPA's website, which is um, called Be Like Goff. And uh, this, uh, this document argues that Tony Abbott should be as radical on the right-wing side of politics as Gough Whitlam was on the left. And it's sort of arguing that, well, Gough had his go at yeah. sort of changing Australia <laughs> from a left point of view. So it's, it's sort of in the interest of balance that we have mm-hmm. someone like Tony oh. Abbott to change Australia on the right, you know, oh. to balance things up. You mean uh, all those energy. years they weren't enjoying the uh, Medicare, they weren't enjoying the free university and they weren't enjoying all the things that were achieved then? Well, I, I think the message is we, 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 we can't expect to, be in, uh, to have those things as entitlements anymore <laughs> no. when, when we're in a dire sort of budget uh, yeah. or projected dire budget situation. Yeah. But, but you asked initially about uh, renewable energy and, yes. and what the this document contains is 75 recommendations of what the Abbott government should do and climate change figures in four of the first six of those recommendations. Mm. Number one, repeal the carbon tax and mm. don't replace it. Uh, number two, abolish the Department of Climate Change, which we knew was the, about the first thing that they did. So mm. it's even in the order that the IPA is putting mm. these things out, it, it, it kind of closely corresponds to the order in which they're being implemented by the government. Three, abolish the the Clean Energy Fund. Mm. So basically... Tried twice. um, (laughs) Yeah, so with the Clean Energy Finance Mm. Corporation. And uh, four, to repeal the renewable energy target altogether. uh, Of those measures, I think the biggest problem for the the Abbott government with clean energy is that all of the polls that you look at, they're rock solid, wall to wall. There are no anomalies in the the polls, whether we're talking about Essential Poll, the Lowy Institute poll, the Climate Institute polls, even the IPA's own polls, which Mm. they do polls as well, Mm. say that... Australians are very strong supporters of uh, renewable energy, which is um, why... Uh, you know, perhaps the, the Abbott government has just has, has has tried to perhaps target particular aspects of it, like wind farms, but generally is hamstrung in terms of getting rid, rid of that because rid of renewable energy because it would be uh, you know a, a real electoral disadvantage not to appease people. But do you um, think? Do you think these? Um 
uh, fossil fuel interests and uh, conservative think tank type interests have weakened Abbott's judgment in relation to this? Well, um, it's it, it's more to do with there being a general sort of media, political, industrial complex atmosphere in which, yes, you could say there's a weakening, but I wouldn't suggest there is some conspiracy that, you know, that um, that particular corporations are, are, are lobbying to kill renewable energy, but certainly the beneficiaries of renewable energy being killed off are the fossil fuel corporations. There's absolutely no doubt. Okay. Well, look... Um your colleague Philip Chubb uh, wrote in his book Power Failure yes. that after the Julia Gillard and Christine Milne um, had the ETS and the you know, climate package, there was a Philip Chubb says there was a public campaign of intimidation by business, media, and coalition, the like of which had not been seen since the seventies. And then you say that both Labor and Coalition are servile, not devoters, but to these multinational companies and to the media. How can we resist this media action if there's another election coming up? How will Labor, you know, Labor presumably is taking this bolder climate action to the electorate. How can the electorate, who's getting these, you know, persistent messages and very funny, those cartoons and things are funny, they grab people's attention, they stay with you, they're sticky sort of images. Mm. Um, how can we resist that? Uh, well, I think um, it is very hard to, um, to overcome uh, the fact that when you have the most powerful media outlet in the country being News Limited capable of a national campaign okay because what you have to remember it's not just how much you know how how many news outlets they own it's that the that a particular campaign when it editorializes very strongly against um labor for example over climate change can be so well coordinated and um and i think um you know for Labor to overcome the caricatures that are produced by, you know, what what I I see as a sort of um, you know psychotic kind of tabloid behaviour almost mm. um, is really difficult. So, which is why perhaps it's decided to shift to renewables um, over um, uh, ETS. I mean, what what the tabloids can do with an ETS and and notably the environment minister. Mr. Greg Hunt is doing a lot of interviews this week. He was on Insiders on Sunday. He's been on ABC Radio this week, uh, really trying to change the semantics around to say basically an ETS is just another carbon tax, okay? Because mm. if you can feed uh, the tabloid press with the reinstatement of the slogan, the tax is back, no mm. more tax, act mm. the tax, and characterize it as a tax, then, you know, you've got that enormous might of news corporation behind you, which isn't prepared to go into any uh, deliberative discussion uh, or long-form discussion of actually what it is. 
And really, Greg Hunt should know better as he was one of the key uh, architects of an ETS scheme in the last years of the Howard government. Mm. He, he knows what an ETS scheme is. He, does, he knows that it's not a carbon tax, mm. but all his comments are playing to the tabloid media and, and that's who he's really wanting to impress mm. or, 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 you know, feed in terms of the, them then picking up and doing all the heavy lifting really. So all Greg Hunt has to do is get from ETS to carbon tax and and News Limited will take you know, we'll we'll do the rest. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's not that's not very consoling. Well, you told us in your article that media headlines like "kick this mob out" actually broke the government. I think we sort of witnessed that. But behind the scenes, you talk about Gina Reinhart's great mine, uh, uh, a huge mine was suddenly approved after the Abbott government came in and now that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is again, you know, under threat, Mm. it has a connection with a competing wind farm at Windlab. Can you just spell out that story? Because those are kind of behind-the-scenes stories that don't really get into our media. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, What is happening with the Galilee Basin area is that in order for both the Adani mine, the Adani coal mine, which is another huge mine, um, has been granted a licence for along with the GVK Alpha mine that's part owned by Gina Reinhart to become viable as profitable coal mines, they, you know, they really need to be able to sell coal at a market price that's that's going to... um, uh, going to make it worthwhile to continue with all the setup and development and investment that they're doing. Tony Abbott has has lent his personal support to the development of a nearby coal-fired power station, which, if it's supplied by the Galilee Basin, could make all the difference between those coal mines being profitable and otherwise. Did you just okay. say that again? That's a new coal-fired power station. A new coal-fired power station. Yeah. That, you think um, that would be completely against every global decision-making. Do you think we'd be censured for that, don't you think? Well, you'd think so, and it's sort of flown under the radar a bit. It comes up in an article uh, in a Townsville newspaper which shows Tony Abbott sort of doing a run in Townsville and and with a a story about how he's supporting this mine. It'll it'll create so many jobs. Uh, Sorry, the mine as well well as the the coal fire power station it'll create so many jobs but um so these mines really need this coal-fired power station to kind of make the difference on their profit margin but um but at the same time a victorian company has put in a bid uh to build and uh, build the largest uh renewable farm in australia which is both wind turbines and solar farms in in the one area Mm. that is promising to beat the price of electricity coming out of the proposed coal-fired power station by $30 per megawatt hour. They're getting finance from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, aren't they? That finance is now now in jeopardy because of the uncertainty created about uh, by you know really the treasury ordering the clean energy finance Cop- corporation to cease subsidising wind farms. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a vested interest in that. That's 
Well, is it, well, it's the timing is is remarkably coincidental. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, the, the coincidence that the the CEFC was directed to cease subsidising wind farms, oh. which it, for which it actually returns a profit to Australian taxpayers, oh, no. um, it, it came at a time when it was realised that the the wind lab proposal posed a threat to the coal fire power station that's needed to get to to, to enable profitability yeah. for these two gigantic coal mines. Yeah. Okay, thank you, David. We're going to go to another break, listeners. We're listening to uh, David Holmes, who's giving us an insight into how the media manipulates our thoughts about the climate action we need to take and can't take because our minds are so manipulated like this. And after the break, we're going to talk about subsidies. We're speaking to David Holmes from Monash University. He's an expert on climate communications, really, and media media studies. Um, David, I want to talk about subsidies now. No matter how, bi- how the two big parties, how much they say they know climate change is real, they won't say, let's stop the billions going to the fossil fuel industry in subsidies. They even talk a lot about the subsidies they give to renewable energy through the target, but doesn't seem to be anything compared to the annual subsidy that the fossil fuel interests enjoy. Can you talk about subsidies now and tell me if Murdoch's attack machine wanted to stop subsidies, how would they go about it? You know, like the uh, Bromham Bishop flights. I mean, they've just attacked her about the flights, uh, helicopter flights. So if they wanted to say, look at these subsidies, this... Well, I think what you'd do is just point to the the glaring contradictions in in the whole you know discourse of the government about what it will and won't subsidize i mean when it was dismantling industry in this country you might remember that the the canning fruit canning people the abbott government couldn't afford yeah 25 million dollars for spc ardmona when when it is committed to handing over 2.3 billion to mining companies that goes to their direct bottom line in the form of fuel subsidies so um how do they spend uh, that by the way pardon how do they spend that the fuel subsidies uh well uh if you've ever wondered why uh, why the big mining companies are able to afford uh fly in fly out um flying in and flying out hordes of miners uh all of the fuel for those trips is is totally tax deductible is well is rebated so yes um, and all of the fuel for their heavy machinery, it, it, it comes to, um, it, you know, it totals 2.3 billion per year. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's a glaring kind of subsidy. Well, Another there have been campaigns against subsidies, but they just don't grab the public interest. And as you said in your article, it just goes under the radar most of the time. The fact that we do subsidise well, yes. I mean, you know, there can be an enormous amount of fuss, you know, spike in attention around quite, uh, you know, small amounts, uh, mm. you know, where, like, say, welfare, in, you know, welfare issues to do with the general population. Yes. But these um, these sorts of huge subsidies really do go under the radar. Can I the, just stop you to say, what would be a good way to grab the attention in the media? What sort of 
images or slogans would be the way that would get the public. Surely the public would love to get that money. I mean, all this budget scare about people worried about well, how can we make well, our budget, but it's um, <laughs> easy take back the, the subsidies from the miners. Sure. Well, I think um, I think the phrase corporate welfare is one that could be well used here to, you know, because really, you know, since since the current government has come to power welfare across the population has really been run down mm. whilst corporate, you know, so welfare in its traditional sense, but corporate welfare is alive and well. Mm. But the Labor Party itself seems to be too timid to use that sort of language, mm. um, you know, as, as if it, it itself doesn't want to get big business offside. Mm. Um, but, you know, we really do have... Uh, um, you know, a problem with class politics here. I mean, the, the companies that are most able to pay out of their record profits, I mean, you know, are the, are the ones that are getting these huge subsidies. And, um, uh, you know, another case in point is actually to do with the Galilee Basin, how the Abbott government has proposed a $5 billion Northern, North Australia infrastructure program, uh, which has been dubbed the Dirty Energy Finance Corporation. And, and the $5 billion that they've put up, I mean, the, the most needy candidates for those for that money are in fact the the, the mines being developed in in the uh, Galilee Basin, which may not be economically viable unless they receive a subsidy. Mm. So again, we're talking about corporate welfare in the interest of being able to burn more coal. It seems the whole campaign seems to be to delay the inevitable. We're hearing from the stock exchange that coal, the cost of coal has been down for four years. It's not going to get better. I feel that it's all delay tactics on their part. They perhaps don't care about the urgency of climate change or don't believe in it being so urgent. But we have weaselly thought leaders like Bjorn Lomborg, who I don't read a lot of his articles, just to hear him occasionally. I rang up the ABC one day when he was on there saying that, oh, all we need is more R&D. Look, I totally agree that climate change is happening. It's a major problem. But we need to do more more research and develop. Why is this so attractive? I think this is one of Lomborg's strategies that he talks about in in some of his uh, books like The Skeptical Environmentalist, which Mm. is... Is really a, a a strategy of killing off the technology, the clean technologies that we do have now, by labelling it as inefficient and not price competitive, and saying that we should endlessly defer the implementation of clean energy technologies because they're not good enough, and instead put our investment into R and D. It's a little bit like what's happened in the US with the electric car, and you might be familiar with, you know, the Bush administration puts $1.5 billion into developing a hydrogen fuel cell car. Now, now you know, all the analyses show that hydrogen fuel cell technologies will never be able to be taken to market. It's just the energy you need just to make the hydrogen fuel cells basically mitigates any benefits you would get from that technology. So, so in other words... The upshot of it all was that you managed to delay the development of the electric car by 20 to 30 years, Mm. okay? Now, 
Lomborg's argument, I believe, is vexatious because he's, he's more or less promoting dead-end research into unspecified new technologies when all we need to do is work on the technologies we have, making solar panels more efficient, which is happening anyway, mm. uh, making wind farms more efficient, which is happening anyway, just like any technology, even fossil fuel technologies. Car companies are making cars more efficient all the time to use petrol. Mm. But ex- ex- except they'll never achieve that to the point of, of having zero carbon yeah. emissions. But exactly. right now... Renewable energy is price competitive with fossil fuels. It's already price competitive, uh, as with the example of the the solar and wind farm near the Galilee Basin that can beat the fossil fuel uh, coal-fired farm. I mean, there's a classic point. But but however, where it where clean energy beats fossil fuel energy hands down is the minute you price in health. Okay, for future generations, if you price in health, well, of course, renewable renewable energy will uh, for the rest of time beat fossil fuel energy. Yes, zero health impact and they've even tried to do that with the wind turbine sickness but we won't even go there. Look, thank you very much David. I have one last question for you. I talked about this attack machine in the media, uh, the think tanks that are feeding out slogans and influencing politicians who are also scared of them mm. and there are also the things that the mainstream media are quiet about. Is the electorate just stupid, do you think, or is there something we can do to resist? I mean, no, not everyone can go to your courses and learn about media communications. And as you gave the example at the beginning of the person who just looks at the front page, has a bit of a laugh at the cartoon and then goes to the sport. How can we get the idea, you know, of this huge, you gave an image of the huge amount of water hanging over our heads, for example, get the images through to Australians, to city dwellers, whichever sector of public you, you're mm. speaking to. No, I don't think the electorate is stupid at all. I mean, your earlier comments about does the media manipulate the electorate, my my position on the media's impact on readers and viewers and listeners is not that it tells, the the media tells people what to think, but it it does tell people what to think about, okay? So so in that sense, the, the more you have concentrated media and less diversity in what people can think about about the same thing so yeah. they become obsessed with the carbon tax become obsessed with you know stop the boats whatever but it's not because they're they're stupid it's because they're being fed the same messages by monopolized media like brainwashing all right well look thank you very much david um, thanks for talking to us, David. That was David Holmes from Monash University, where he's a senior lecturer in communications and media studies. Thanks to Vivian for that interview with David Holmes. Next up, we've got Roger Dargaville talking to Michael McKenzie from Radio National. This was an interview Michael did a few weeks ago, and we've also run it, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Roger Dargaville is talking about how we can here in Australia, we could actually achieve 50% carbon reductions by 2030. To look at how realistic the target is, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Roger Dargaville. Roger's the Deputy Director and Senior Energy Analyst at the Melbourne Energy Institute, which is part of the University of Melbourne. Roger, can I begin by setting you this scene? It's now 2030. 
I walk out my door, you're with me, I want you to paint me a picture of what Australia in the streets and across the landscape looks like if we reach a target as proposed by Labor of 50% renewable. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. So, uh, 2030, we're going to have, if, if Labor's plan uh, comes to fruition, 50% renewable. So that means, as you said, you know, four to five uh, times more wind farms uh, and solar PV out there than what we currently have. Right. So that's uh, that means we have 25 gigawatts of wind by, by 2030. And probably, well, and depending on what the policy settings are, around about 18 gigawatts of rooftop PV compared to the four and a half that we currently have. Okay, so let's let's convert that into uh, some kind of visual. Uh, so in terms of wind power, how much of our urban coastline, our rural coastline, other parts of our landscape be dominated by turbine? Uh, it'll, it'll still only be dotted with, 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 with wind farms. If, if you go out today and, and drive for a couple hundred kilometres in rural Victoria or New South Wales, in fact, New South Wales, you'd be very lucky to, to pass a wind farm, but in, in Victoria, South Australia, you, you might see a few. So, you know, you, if you saw you know, five or six in a 100-kilometre drive instead, you'd still hardly say it was wall-to-wall turbines. For the uh, rooftop PV, um, mm. what, what we might see is uh, as high as 50% penetration. So every second home would have a rooftop PV system. What's uh, that now in terms of home numbers? Uh, nationally, one in 10. Uh, if you go to places like Brisbane or uh, South Australia in general, Adelaide, it's more like one in four. So uh, quite a lot more PV, um, and there will probably be issues with managing uh, the power that comes from those PV systems. Because Let's talk about that. I do want to know about this. So if we're going to achieve a 50% renewable target by 2030, as, as proposed by Labor, of course, it's 90% when it comes to the Greens in that same year, but that's another story. So when it comes to that, the, the, the power that we're converting from ray of light on our roofs is going back to a power company or is it being stored on site for our use in 2030? Well, it depends whether you install storage or not. So uh, if you don't use the power uh, in your home, so if you're not at home during the day, for example, then that power needs to be exported back onto the grid. If everyone has PV and not enough people are at home using that power in, in a residential neighbourhood, then that power has to be moved from that residential area maybe to a commercial or industrial zone where that power can be consumed. The um, distribution system is not designed to do that. It's sort of designed for a one-way flow of power coming from... To the house, to the factory. That's right. And so to go back the other way would require a bit of retrofitting of the system, possibly uh, quite expensive. So there's some additional costs that we... Uh, it's hard to say at this stage what, what they would be. Now, this is where it all gets political, because one of the arguments against changing to renewables from those people in favour of more traditional fossil fuel-based energy sources like coal is that the transition to renewable will cost so much that, first, it will outweigh some of the initial savings you may make in the longer term, but, B, um, consumers, you and I, sitting at home, are going to see enormous increases in our power bills. What can you say about that? Uh, so we did some uh, back-of-envelope calculations as to what this might cost. If you're going to build an extra 20 gigawatts of wind, uh, that will cost uh, around about $40 billion. So I think uh, uh, Tony Abbott mentioned $60 billion, so, I mean, in, in the ballpark. So th these are quite... Well, there's a third off, but, yeah, OK. Well, I mean, it's not an order of magnitude, so it's, it's not too bad compared to um, other numbers we might have heard. So it's, it's quite a lot of money, but if you compare that to what we actually currently spend on energy each year, 
which is about $8 billion wholesale price. So if you average that over 20 years and compare that to the, the 40 odd billion you've got to spend on wind, mm. it's actually not a big increase. If but that's just wind. You haven't mentioned solar yet. Well, solar is pretty cost-effective as it is, so um, that doesn't really incur an additional cost. It pays for itself right. quite quickly. Uh, and an interesting point that uh, probably hasn't been mentioned to date is that by, by 2030, uh, about 12 gigawatts of our existing coal and gas-fired capacity will be more than 50 years old. So past its use by date. So when you say, is there, is there a, a, an actual cut-off, a deadline built into contracts for supply of coal when it comes to half a century, is it? Oh, well, no, there's, there's no, no clause saying you have to shut the power station down at, at, at 50 years of lifetime. But at that kind of life, they start becoming very expensive to maintain. Their efficiency gets lower and lower, and the, the costs might outweigh the, the, the profits. So uh, they, they tend to you know, look to shut them down and, and rebuild something new. And that was Michael McKenzie interviewing Roger Dargaville. Uh, and thanks to Radio National and Michael McKenzie for allowing us to replay that interview. That's the show for tonight, folks, and we have been listening to David Holmes, the Senior Lecturer in Communications and Media Studies at Monash University, as well as that short, short interview with Roger Dargaville. Roger is from the University of Melbourne and works for the Earth Sciences Department. So many thanks to the Beyond Zero Emissions team. Uh, that is Roger, Vivian, myself, Miwa, Teddy, uh, and uh, the promotional crew over at Beyond Zero's emissions offices in uh, Brunswick Street. We've had a guest panellist tonight. That's Stephanie. Many thanks to Stephanie. And, of course, we'll see you same time next week. Coming up next, Save Albert Park.